Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Navita Khan will join us to discuss In Quest of a Shared Planet. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, climate change requires interaction of numerous global parties, United Nations-led Conference of Parties. And joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Navita Khan. Dr. Khan is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. She sits on the board of the Center for Islamic Studies, affiliate faculty for Program in Environmental Science, and has penned the previous books, Muslim Becoming, and is editor of Beyond Crisis, Reevaluating Pakistan. She has penned the new book, In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for inviting me. The book explores the COP Conference of Parties in depth. I'm curious how you became interested in this topic. Sure. I'm an anthropologist, and for those who may not know what an anthropologist does, an anthropologist hangs out, does a lot of deep hanging out in different places till they get to a point where they feel that they can grasp the stories, desires, and aspirations of people and their struggles and practices. And so I, in 2012, I was doing something similar on an island in the middle of a very large river system in Bangladesh called the Brahmaputra. This particular island was of interest to me because the land keeps going and coming because it's made up of largely silt. And I was very interested to see how it is people live with moving land. And so I'd been in this site for almost 10 years by this time. And one of the things that I noticed was the intensification of weather patterns. Kind of interesting to be able to even tell that in this site because there's so much physical dynamism already. So how is it that you even see the signal of climate change in the middle of this dynamism was itself a fascinating topic for me to explore. So I was seeing climate change in the site through the intensification of monsoon rains. They were coming later, but they were far more intense. Winters were now stretched out and much colder. So I got very interested to see how the country of Bangladesh was dealing with this problem. So I tracked down all the big figures within the Bangladesh national scene in terms of environmental protection and climate change and started talking to them. And among them was this one particular figure, Salimul Haq, a very big climate uh, activist who has had a huge impact on the climate conversations that are happening within the UN. And he told me at that time, 2012, in Bangladesh, he said, you should show up in Paris 
for the UN-led conversation on climate change. And so I literally just sort of followed him into the uh, UN-led conversations. I spent the two weeks there completely being confused, 35, 40,000 people in a small city that had been created by the UN in the suburbs of Paris. And the outcome of that was the 2015 Paris Agreement, which everyone has by now heard of as offering up a global governance regime for how climate change is to be combated by all the countries of the world. And those two weeks was just so puzzling for me because I couldn't understand how it is that you get all the countries of the world into these various rooms and get them to agree on different parts of this agreement so as to have something that's binding for all of them at the end of it. And so I then spent the next eight years trying to figure that out. I went back to every one of these meetings every year in which anywhere between 25,000 to 50,000 people attend and ran around that entire process going from room to room trying to figure out how climate looked in that particular room versus another one and just trying to piece together the process by which countries of the world actually come to a good agreements as opposed to more troubled ones that we see in other parts of the world and other uh, domains of our life. So that was what led me to write this book, just talk about how it is I came to an understanding of this process. And very early on, because I was coming at this process through Salimul Haq's intervention and was coming from Bangladesh, I decided to use that as an advantage instead of suffering from FOMO, that I wasn't getting to see the bigger, larger players within this process were doing, I just followed this small, poor country through the process to understand what it even means to be from a small country and to have stakes in this process. And it's very clear that Bangladesh had a lot of stakes because it's in the eye of the storm, as it's called, because of the rising ocean waters and its possible impact on Bangladesh in terms of loss of land and displacement of people. And the things that I was already noticing upriver in my field site, you know, the intensification of weather. And so just following Bangladesh through this process, Bangladeshi members of civil society, Bangladeshi delegates from the Ministry of Climate Change and Environment, following them and trying to get a sense of how it is that they develop a stake in this process, learn about it, try to be influential in the ways that they can. That became sort of my privileged point of view. And I made a conscious decision early on that I wouldn't actually try to represent the perspective of the global north, which is already so well represented in our media in the West, that I would take up not only Bangladesh's perspective, but the various groups that Bangladesh belongs to, which usually falls under the rubric of global south. So what would be a global south perspective on the process. So that's what the book is about. It sort of describes how it is that something like the Paris Agreement was even writable and agreeable to so many countries and how it is that a poor country for whom it means a lot, how they try to make it actionable, how they try to make it stick and so on. How is it that countries of the global south can have their influence on these negotiations, especially given their economic positions, have a say in things that are going to affect them very deeply? 
This is a very good point, and this is something that I struggle with in the book, and that is what I'm trying very hard to explain both to myself and to my readers, is the geopolitics being the way it is, it's hard to imagine that a country this small could have much of a say in this process. But the way that the UN Framework Convention that first kick-started this process in 1992 is framed is to get all the countries of the world excited about being part of the global fight against climate change. And it's a gradual stepping up in terms of efforts. So with the larger, richer countries starting first, showing leadership, trying to make their economies more climate friendly, to poorer countries fighting poverty and then subsequently building up the capacity and the economies to be able to also join the fight on climate change. So insofar as this process was really invested in trying to get every country to step up, they've had to be much more inclusive in a way that other kinds of UN bodies are not necessarily quite so open to the influence of smaller countries. And countries like Trinidad, Tobago, all these small island nations, they are really in some ways facing world annihilation in terms of the loss of their territories and the loss of their countries and sovereignties and so on. And so they have a huge moral position within this process. They speak, as it were, from experience and from looking into the future. So that kind of voice, that direction and vision is very needed to keep everybody invested in the process. And so that was another reason to make sure that the smaller, less powerful, less rich countries could also be part of the process because we need that kind of vision, that kind of energy to keep people around the table and discussing how to combat it. So that's just to give you a sense of how not just countries like Bangladesh, but small island nations, African nations, least developed countries, all these countries were in some ways welcomed into the process very early on and have had a lot of say in terms of what their countries need in order to get to a point of resilience, if not directly combating climate change. So that was that was how these countries got to be a part of the process. How does a country from the global south navigate this process? Are they at a disadvantage? Do they know who to talk to, who the right players are, get their positions across? That's a great question. So very early on in the process, in the early 1990s, it was the richer, more established, powerful countries that came with what is called the text and other countries debated whether the text was fully inclusive of all their concerns, such as mitigation, or was there enough attention to adaptation? Was there concern over finance? All of these things poorer countries were responding to at the beginning. But as this process aged and the capacity building part of the UN sort of took over, these poorer countries developed the capacity to have negotiators who could write text, right? The ability to not just respond to text, but to actually write text is a very powerful one. But again, you know, a country like Bangladesh sends maybe a handful of delegates, whereas U.S. will send in the hundreds. So how do you compete in terms of the scale of expertise you have? Well, you form blocks, and there are 
very interesting blocks that have been part of this process from the beginning. Uh, historically, you've had G77, which was later joined by China, and that pretty much represents more than half of the countries of the world. Now, G77 and China don't always agree on all the issues. For example, G77 and China might want far more attention paid to finance, where some of the poorer countries or smaller countries like small island nations want attention to mitigation because they feel that finance is already too late, that they want countries to start mitigating and more ambitiously right away. And so there are blocks that represent the small island nations, then there are blocks that Bangladesh is part of, such as the least developed countries. And it's through those blocks that you then get to really amplify your presence in a process that has so many different strands. And so in any one negotiating room, you won't see a country representative from all of those countries. You'll just have one person who represents the position for all the LDCs or the position for African uh, group of negotiators. So that way, they're able to expand their presence. And the UN has been really actually quite sensitive to this. The secretariat for this process has spent quite a lot of money in trying to ensure that poorer countries are able to meet regionally before the COP so that they are prepared with some sort of a platform, that they get money and space and time before the COP even starts, like a couple of days before the COP so they can get into sync. So it's also been quite collaborative. And interestingly, even developed countries, countries, EU, America, etc., wants the negotiators of these countries to have that same kind of diplomatic strength. And so we'll also provide funding towards this, right? Because they want everybody on board. And this is one of the few bases in the world where there's actually both intense negotiation, but also collaboration to try and get everybody up to speed to be involved in the negotiations. You do a deep dive on 2015 Paris Agreement, which nations of the Global South contributed to that. One particular outcome, the nationally determined contributions, which these nations have to come together to make sure that this takes place. Yes, just to give a little bit of history here to contextualize the Paris Agreement, you know, it was between the UNFCCC, the framework convention that I talked of earlier that kicked off this process, negotiating process for global climate policy. After that came about in 1992, its very big achievement was to have an earlier agreement to the Paris Agreement, which is the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, people will have heard of it, but only in passing because it didn't have very much traction in the West, because early on, America decided that they didn't want a process that was quite so regulatory that gave them very precise targets that they had to meet in terms of mitigating and making the economy more sustainable. And America's preferred approach was to have something that was much more voluntaristic, that every country in the world is doing their bit, not just the industrialized countries, and every country does what it can. It volunteers to indicate to you what their mitigation goals are going to be, what their adaptation goals are going to be. And so the Paris Agreement is really an outcome of that decision, of the discussions around that. And so the Paris Agreement very strongly relies on countries of the world to submit these things, which you mentioned already, nationally determined contributions, which are like grand reports. And they are of two kinds. 
guidelines. One is the report that says all things going well, we propose that we will be able to achieve these sorts of mitigation targets across these sorts of sectors like aviation and entertainment. And and then a follow-up report saying this is what we've really been able to achieve, right? And so this is a very different model than the Kyoto model. And the idea is to indicate to countries of the world that everybody has to do their bit, but also that we're not going to infringe on your sovereignty. You decide for yourself what is doable and do it. And by now, you know what the state of the world is and how quickly climate change is already upon us. So you have to take on the burden of ratcheting up your ambition. This, in theory, sounds really, really good. In practice, because it's still being rolled out, is going to be interesting. And that's what I'm going to be studying next, is try and understand how it is that we go from having NDCs to having implementation and enforcement and so on. You also cover another issue where it's maybe a stalemate between the global north and south, and that's really this issue of loss and damage. Yes. So loss and damage is a really interesting climate action because loss and damage is, if you think about it, an acknowledgement that not enough has been done to combat climate change and that there is already irreparable loss and damage that has happened to ecosystems, to people's livelihoods, to their territories, etc. And, you know, so it was resisted from very early on. It was introduced by the small island nations into the climate negotiation because it's it's something that they worry about because it's, you know, climate change is an existential threat for them in a way that it isn't even for coastal countries like Bangladesh. And so they introduced it and it didn't get very much traction, but they have been involved in behind the scene conversation on this for over a decade. And they managed to get African countries, landlocked countries, smaller, other uh, poorer countries, etc., interested in making it their issue as well. And it became one of the ways in which to put pressure on this process to say that if you don't mitigate or if you're not doing enough for adaptation or if you're not interested in uh, giving us more finance to deal with, uh, you know, making our economies more resilient, etc., then, you know, we have the stick of a loss and damage uh, pillar within the climate uh, Paris Agreement. And so this is not so much a stalemate as a late development in order to put more pressure on developed countries and also the larger developing countries such as China, India, Brazil to do more. And within the process itself, loss and damage really only at this point still has rhetorical force. It's really just saying that, you know, loss, you have to acknowledge that climate change has already had a tremendous uh, impact on the world already. It's not something off in our horizons. And outside of the process, though, it's a signal that constituencies within countries have to maybe start taking up litigation in a more serious way in order to force their governments to do more or to force their governments to regulate corporations. So, yeah, so it's a latecomer to the climate negotiations. And in some ways, it is it has the quality of being a stick. 
What is your impression about it? Are you optimistic about how these meetings go? Do you think that the structure that's in place is the best mechanism for coming to these outcomes? How you've seen these negotiations play out over the years? So I went into it, as I said, as a curious bystander coming in from Bangladesh. And I didn't go in with a tremendous amount of hope because having lived in in the United States for several decades now, I've come to see that the UN has really waned in importance, both in this country and globally. So I was just thinking it's an effort. It's a well-meaning effort, intellectual curiosity for me. But once I got there and I realized the intensity with which countries like Bangladesh throw themselves into the negotiation, all the training that's going on in other countries of the global south to be a part of it, I realized it was quite meaningful to them. And it was meaningful, one, because it gave them some sense of how it is that climate change was being attended to in the global geopolitical stage. Otherwise, they'd be left out of it entirely. They would hear news of it in the same way the rest of us do in the newspapers or radio shows or blog posts. This way, they got to actually see and be a part of what was being discussed right there and then. The other thing is that it also allowed them to have a little bit more influence in other parts of their negotiations with these powerful countries, right? So it gave them a little bit of wriggle room to say that we can hold up certain decisions within this if, for instance, you continue to impose unfair interest rates on us, on our loans. And so it became one more site for the exercise of sovereignty by countries of the global south. But most importantly, I think what it did was that it trained huge numbers of people, and I don't mean just the countries of the global south, it trained the youth of the next generation, it trained NGOs, civil society, subnationals such as cities, etc., what the heck uh, climate change is, right, and all the different forms it can possibly take, and all the different modalities by which we have to actually think about combating it. And so the numbers that attended is not just idle bystanders. These are people who take back what they're seeing, what they're learning, what they're hearing. Negotiations are not the only things that are happening at the COP. There are also huge numbers of side events, their reports be discussing the latest in terms of science, etc. All of this is being distributed through this process. And so in that way, it's serving an enormous educating process in terms of getting people on board on climate change and has done so over the course of the last 20 years. In terms of hope, whether it's in sync with the reality of climate change around us, I really don't think any one process should be the only way to think about this problem. I think that it's probably the only international process, but I am heartened by the fact that cities, municipalities, schools, indigenous people's groups, youth movements, labor movements, it's all taking it up and thinking about it within their own context. And I think it has to be that broad base, the fight against climate change. It cannot just rely on having an agreement from the top that then is nicely implemented and enforced. That is a little too gradualist and a little too long term. 
that is another through line of the book is this the story of the in-between spaces of all the people that you mentioned that take part in the event that aren't part of the process. And that really has a, a multiplier effect that may have even more of an impact than any of the negotiations or agreements that come out of it. I think so. I actually think that the process is important because it is a place where all the countries of the world come together with all their different kinds of constituencies, their populations, even people who are oppositional to their own countries, all coming together and putting their mind to this problem in a genuinely constructive spirit, right? I mean, you've got obviously obstructors and so on, and you've got economic competition, and you've also got war raging elsewhere, etc. But there's the way in which this process has protected this space for that coming together of people and minds, which I think is laudable. One of the things that I want to focus on next is really how it is that the process has engaged youth and youth activists and how they have become so much more sophisticated in terms of their understanding of the problem and their understanding that they're not just fighting for the future, but they're also fighting for justice right now. And that is something that I'm really interested in and I'm going to be focusing on in the next part of my research. We were talking with Dr. Navita Khan, her new book, In Quest of a Shared Planet, Negotiating Climate from the Global South. Dr. Khan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.